New Rock Stars is a YouTube channel devoted to big movie and TV franchises like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, and Westworld. I discovered the channel last year while covering The Walking Dead for Playboy and wound up writing a profile of Philip and Eric for the New York Times around the Season 7 premiere of Game of Thrones last summer. I was not the first to discover new rock stars. The channel had nearly a million subscribers at the time I found them and has more than 1.2 million now a year later. When a new trailer or film or TV episode comes out, Philip Molina and Eric Voss go to work on sophisticated, polished videos that break them down, point out things you might have missed, and explain things you might not understand. Today, we talk about the director's commentary, documentary, and other features on the VOD and Blu-ray release of Star Wars The Last Jedi. Philip Molina and Eric Voss, thanks for talking to me. Hey, Scott. How's it going, man? Nice to talk to you again. Good. So I wrote a profile of you guys last summer uh, in the New York Times around the season seven premiere of Game of Thrones, and I've wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about any number of the franchises y'all cover since we launched the show in January, because I think you're doing a, a really interesting thing that's a lot different than, uh, frankly, what I see uh, anywhere else with uh, new rock stars. And so I, th- I thought maybe to start, I could just get the two of you to sort of tell me what new rock stars is like I've never heard of it. Sure. Uh, Well, we are a YouTube channel primarily, and uh, we kind of have two things that uh, drive us. One, we talk about the things that the internet cares about the most right now. Uh, And the internet obviously is, you know, a noun that just like is a series of tubes. But what I actually mean by that is internet culture, the people that live on the internet, that spend their lives on the internet, there's very specific properties that matter the most to them right now. And they don't really often line up exactly with Nielsen ratings or anything like that. And then the thing we do with those properties is we treat them about as seriously as, you know, you treat Scorsese in film school. We go into what makes them so great. Uh, why they uh, like hit us so hard and why we get so attached to our, say, Marvel characters or why we um, feel the the drama of Game of Thrones on the level that our teachers wished we would with Othello uh, and just other Shakespearean tragedies. We try to like connect the art um, to the viewer about the properties that they don't normally get to hear that kind of stuff about. Yeah, Philip and I go way back. Um, we've been friends since college, and um, every time we would watch a TV show, whether it was like binging a season of Lost or going to see the new Marvel movie, um, we really like got a lot out of the conversations we would have afterwards because they tended to be nerdier and more in depth. And um, specifically, we were driven by the question of you know like what was something that we missed there? Um, there was a deeper meaning, or there was some kind of interesting subtext that um, we didn't catch the first time around. So uh, with new rock stars, we have essentially just kind of moved that conversation onto YouTube and brought in, you know, um, all of our followers to weigh in as well. So it's part film and TV criticism and part Easter egg spotting and part really textual analysis. Is that the three main categories that you you feel like you're coming from? Yeah, though, I'll kind of put them all under the category of FOMO, right? You you are watching and you have a fear of missing out that you're not getting the full experience, be it an Easter egg or not really understanding why something is, uh, maybe an image is framed a certain way or not getting the reference that's being made here in the subtext. Uh, it's all of that idea of like, are you getting the full picture here and all the layers? And so we just want to give them all to you. 
it, you come at this from a from a serious place, but the the delivery is v- very comedic oriented, and you two guys both have comedy backgrounds. W- what what would you say is the 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 voice or the comedic sensibility, editing style, that sort of thing with for these videos? Um, we try to keep it light, um, lighthearted and quickly paced. You know, like uh, I think a lot of the times you see people on um on youtube and different media kind of making jokes about this like on good morning america it seems a little stilted and we try to just keep like uh the conversation driven by the facts and by the interesting details and whatever side commentary or jokes we have made on the side that would naturally kind of spring up in the conversation we'll go in that direction personally i you know i like to do voices and stupid characters so sometimes when i'm trying to like figure out or rationalize what happens in a confusing scene in a movie or or TV show. I'll kind of put myself in the mind of the character and do a a Negan impression from The Walking Dead to figure out why Negan does what he does. And Uh, I hate it. hate it. (laughs) You do the Negan knee bend, too. Uh, You always do the Negan knee bend. Well, you can't do Negan without doing the back bend. I'm definitely doing it right now. I I swear to you I'm doing it right now. I'm pulling the back. Phillip's very That lean back, yeah. Uh, His stool almost fell over. Uh, What uh, I think, like to think of it too, is that, you know, I used to be a uh, tutor for real rich kids who uh, were just like kind of pains in the ass. And I always felt like in order to connect with them, I couldn't really be just another one of their teachers. So I, I was coming at it from the angle of like a comedian, but I came to learn really quickly. If you're funny when someone isn't wanting you to be funny, they hate it. They do not want to hear you <laughs> trying to be funny. But, but they love my characters. Yeah, they no, I don't know. <laughs> but what they do really like is when you help explain something they're having trouble understanding with a funny illusion or joke or, you know, bringing up some allegory in a way that they can understand. Uh, and so that kind of is is something I overlaid over the whole channel is uh, you can be funny. We can we can make as many jokes as we want, as long as it's in service of delivering information. I, I know from meeting with y'all for the New York Times piece that a lot of what you're seeing on screen, like even in the case of the of the Last Jedi video, the the main one that was like 45 minutes long. It's all Eric on screen. But as I see you sit down and, and work on these things, you approach it almost like a writer's room and a, a script. And, and the, both of you are involved in, 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 in shaping this as you go. How do you deal with coming to a consensus on these? This is a I wouldn't call it an opinion product per se, but there's definitely areas where you, you could disagree on what to say about some of these things. We fight a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we we argue a lot about the deeper meaning and stuff because you're right, it's subjective. Uh, and we could not have more different life experiences, Eric and I. And so we definitely come at it from different places. But uh, either, you know, is one of us trying to convince the other or sometimes like when we get to an impasse, we kind of realize, you know, this is probably worth saying there's two ways you can interpret this. Um, but no, it's not at all like a one mind kind of thing where it's like we're in full agreement. Uh, these are heated debates over the nerdiest things. Yeah. And the debate that we have is only the surface of the debate that, you know, fans are having about these properties. So it's actually usually pretty constructive when we disagree on something because we're able to look at it from two different ways and able to address that in the video. Because I'll tell you, on any small point in any breakdown that we do or any explainer or, or analysis video, even if I just have one take on it, if I don't like at least acknowledge some of the other theories of what something could be, uh, I'll have a legion of 
wonderful supporters out there who will tweet me telling me how I'm an idiot and I'm wrong. <laughs> so so you, I have you to, get a, yeah. you get a lot of feedback. Um, most of it's very positive. I don't want to complain at all, but I do get a lot of uh, feedback. And I, I actually got into a Twitter exchange, uh, which is a nice way of putting it, with someone recently. Um, they were, you know, hounding me for why I would bring up. I'm going to say it. Fwooper. Fwooper is the name of a bird in the Harry Potter Pottermore universe. And I speculated that a uh, a bird in the new Fantastic Beast trailer could be a fwooper. And really, I just want to say the word fwooper because it's it's really Clearly, fun to say. It's ridiculous it. <laughs> to say and right. Um, but then I acknowledge that it doesn't look anything like a fwooper. It's just a lot of people online thought it was a fwooper and I didn't think it was fwooper. I'm, the, really, I'm bringing it up now because I want to say fwooper. I, I mean, the Harry, like the Harry Potter people, I think we can all agree, are the worst. <laughs> I don't think we can uh, agree Scott with Porch, that. Uh, they're worse, Porch, that, Scott. Scott. They're worse than the them? Marvel people. <laughs> they're worse than the Star Wars people. They're... Scott, what are you trying to do to us? We can't. We, we can't I'm not going to endorse that opinion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, send complaints to Scott Porch at wherever he is right now. Well, let's talk a little about The Last Jedi. The on-demand just came out. There's a lot of features and extras on it. The Blu-ray uh, is going to come out March 27th, and it'll have uh, all of those same uh, features on it. You made a point in uh, one of the videos that you made right after the the film came out in theaters that you think the central idea and something that you can see through almost all of the main characters is this idea that you have to let go of the past to be able to to move forward and that a lot of the criticism from the film stems from whether you agree with that framing or, or disagree with it is watching these things back over the last several days. Is that still where you come to the film from? Oh yeah, sure. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, it was interesting rewatching it after a couple months and, you know, we, we watched the, the commentary on the, on the Blu-ray release and Ryan Johnson, this, it was interesting. He recorded the commentary before the film was even released. So he was unaware of the, any the of the backlash or yeah. Yeah, division that it caused. But um, he definitely has that uh, agenda with with the the characters arc city laid out specifically with ray he does a very interesting explanation of that mirror cave scene when she's on uh luke skywalker's island on Och 2 and he brings up the whole idea of joseph campbell's hero's journey where um, he defines the hero's journey as a journey from adolescence to adulthood and that's essentially what's going on with ray in that scene there's an infinite number of directions where she can go in her life but she has to choose the most mature version which is recognizing that who she is now is not uh shackled by who she was in the past and that mystery isn't so important for her to answer it's her life is now defined by what choices she makes now and that concept is a very complex notion for people to process especially when you're looking at star wars which is a pretty simple straightforward uh Joseph Campbellian structure. Right. Well, he even says that he discusses how Star Wars is one of the most like archetypal uh, versions of like a good guy, bad guy, the good versus evil um, fight. And then he references how they are brought up as a very simple hero's journey. And you can almost see that he's trying to say like, and I want to step one one step uh, beyond that. Um, and I think that energy, that desire to subvert what Star Wars is normally associated with is there in every choice. The only thing that was surprising to me once I heard the commentary is that I think his agenda seemed to be, you know, I want to subvert what people are expecting. 
uh, I want to change the game here. I want to kind of bring Star Wars into a, a new style of storytelling. But at the same time, he didn't seem to be quite the architect of uh, what that would look like. When you hear him talk about it, he's like, so I tried this, did not work. I tried this and I had to cut it out. He, it kind of reminded me of Zach Braff doing Garden State, who said, I think he said he shot a 40 hour movie to make Garden State and he cut it down to, you know, an hour and a half or whatever it was. Like something ridiculous. Like a great sculptor chiseling away from a monolithic yeah, block. Yeah, exactly. Which we is got not really State. how movies are usually made. <laughs> uh, and it kind of felt like, you know, a little bit of, we'll see what I can like mess up here and then let me pull backward on that. And so, in fact, what's funny is there's a cut out there of Ryan Johnson's uh, Last Jedi that's even crazier and even further away from a Star Wars movie that he actually, I think, had to use the the team uh, at LucasArts to help him, like, pull backward on and be like, okay, well, we still got to kind of be a Star Wars movie. Well, if you start from The Force Awakens, which I enjoyed, but I don't know that I... In- I don't know that I enjoyed it nearly as much as this film because it had such predictable beats. It was essentially a shot-for-shot remake of of the original Star Wars, and Ryan Johnson, from the beginning, seems to have decided he's not going to take the same approach. He was, uh, and, and I think you guys commented on one of the videos that it, it's got more in common with uh, 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 Return of the Jedi, which is the, the the third film in the original trilogy, than it does the Empire Strikes Back, the second film. Yeah, he seems to be pulling from a lot of different sources. I would argue it has more in common with movies like Looper and his, his, in episodes of Breaking Bad that he directed than it does with a lot of the Star Wars universe. On and aesthetically and in terms of the story structure, this uh, does not always feel like a Star Wars movie, and maybe that's what. Um, uh, annoyed some some viewers but i think in that complexity you get a, a much more satisfying experience it's it's a lot harder to digest um in a good way because i feel like i'm still processing exactly what this movie was it doesn't it didn't end in a nice pretty bow the way that uh the force awakens did and i knew exactly what that movie was and how to how to remember it this still feels like oh there's elements of this movie that are still figuring themselves out in my head of of what how exactly to feel about this moment. which is cool you don't normally expect a star wars movie to challenge you uh you kind of like take it in and then you know it and you know it by heart and this movie is asking a lot of questions like you know the most fundamental question of the star wars universe is that there's the good side and the you know the dark side essentially the light side and the dark and this movie is like not really like it's a lot more complicated than that and I feel like that's, you know, the resounding chorus throughout the movie. And that alone is like to a Star Wars fan, like, what are you talking about? Luke Skywalker is a hero. Darth Vader's a bad guy. Like you're changing all that. On, the force you know, is a superpower and nothing more. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is a very almost counterculture 1960s throwing off the orthodoxy way of thinking about the original trilogy. I mean, that's that's a generational way of looking at the original trilogy. Sure. Uh, and I think that's, you know, cool. That said, I, I'm going to go out here and like, I'll, I'll say this only for myself. I'm not speaking for Scott or Eric, but I think that, you know, he might have been um, a little more concerned with with that bucking of, of that uh, previous history than I think he needed to be in the same way that some people think that J.J. Abrams was going too far and trying to reintroduce people to Star Wars as if like they didn't already know it. 
I, I think Ryan Johnson maybe was going a little too far in the other way because I think a perfect example um, that luckily did not make it in the movie, but he originally, the opening uh, shot of the movie, so Star Wars movies famously start in space, a ship goes by the, the screen and then it pans down to a planet. And his original opening had that thing. You'd see space, you see a ship crossing, and then it pan, uh, pans down to a dome that you maybe think is a planet. And it turns out, no, it's Finn uh, in his portable Bacta suit. And it, it's like, he, he even has, in his commentary about that is kind of saying like, I thought it'd be fun to kind of like trick people and make them think I was doing the normal Star Wars thing and not. And like, that's in his opening image of his movie, which in, for many filmmakers, is one of the most important things to establish. It's going to set up your whole tone and your, and your themes. And his opening choice was going to be, haha, you think you're watching a Star Wars movie, but you're not. I'm, I'm making something completely different. And he ended up changing that and, and going with the uh, opening that we have now with the, with the battle essentially. But I, I like that said to a lot to uh, to me about his psychology going in of like I I want to mess with things I want to kind of break things and, and see uh, uh, how I can bend them and twist them and it's like well that's a fun place to come from but you know I I'll say if he's if he was trying to hit it that hard I think he maybe overshot it a little yeah see I would have been okay with uh, that kind of opening image if I cared more about the thin subplot in the movie for me like I want the opening image of the movie to say something about like the movie as a whole and how I should feel about it the opening shot I mean if you take out the opening fanfare of the yellow text crawl uh, out of it um, the thin subplot in the story it still is something that I, I don't understand what narrative purpose it, it plays it feels kind of forced in that we have to find something for him to do in this movie um, so yeah in that sense I would have been annoyed if the opening shot of this movie was like thin in a medical pod, that kind of jokey thing. But when we were looking at trailers for The Force Awakens, uh, there was a shot in one of the trailers where it looked like uh, where Rey was opening up a compartment in that crashed Star Destroyer. And there was little holes that were poked through the compartment. It looked like stars. And one of the theories that you had, Philip, was that what if the opening crawl... Uh, cross dissolved into that shot that looked like stars, but it was Ray opening up uh, a, a compartment scavenging for materials. And that could have been a really cool thing. And because if you look at The Force Awakens, it's Ray's journey. It starts with her as a, as a right. nobody. And she dreams of the stars, but she's not among them like the right. rest of our characters. So thematically, are. that could have been really cool. Like, I think there are ways you can kind of trick the audience, but in a way that's right. thematically That one was more of just like, he was like, let's, let me try out an F you to the audience. Right. And for, instead, yeah, you know, sure. you can watch it on the DVD extras or Blu ray extras, and you'll see kind of it feels kind of wrong and, and it just feels like he's just trying to mess with us and the best way you can know is it cuts away from that and just goes to a different story and like the op- the opening image of the movie does not matter to the movie but the choice he made was to stick with the uh, the original style of opening and I, I mean I think you could make an argument that if you change too much of the visual vocabulary and the the, the consistent elements from film to film it doesn't fit anymore and it becomes this sort of weird elbow in the, you know, in the franchise that just doesn't fit the tone of the, you know, the tone and the form of the rest of the films. And I don't think it did that. I mean, I I don't, I don't, I don't think it was too safe and I don't think it was too out there. I I felt like he, he probably hit the right balance. I I think my criticism as much as anything, and you kind of touched on it was that it's a little long. I mean, it's, Two and a half hours. I think that probably makes it the longest of the of all of the uh, series films and standalone films that have come out. And the the you know I don't know what you do with the John Boyega character if you get rid of the you know the C plot uh, as 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 you called it uh, uh, in one of the videos. But it it certainly made the story 
kind of long. Yeah, uh, when we were rewatching the movie with the commentary, it's interesting. In the in the first um, in the Force Awakens, um, you realize that Finn's motivation is not um, to join the Resistance. His motivation is uh, to pursue his friendship and his relationship with Rey. He does every Rey is his chief motivator. So it's pro, it's it's difficult in the Last Jedi when you separate the two characters geographically. They can't be around each other. So the way Ryan Johnson tried to keep the relationship uh, logically on screen was with this little beacon, this little uh, walkie-talkie that uh, that Leia gave to Rey before she went to go find Luke. And he said as much as possible, he tried to include little pickup shots just showing the beacon. And I, I, it'd be, I'd be interested to hear his commentary after the movie has come out because watching, I've seen the film probably four or five times at this point. That beacon did not ever seem that important to me. I, I wanted to see these characters back on screen together. Uh, I wish that he could have found some kind of clever way, the way he did with Ray and Kylo Ren, uh, to right. have them connect with each other on screen, which he essentially just used the the language of cinema editing uh, to do intercutting shots, even though they're in different locations physically and spatially. Um, they use this kind of force force time as i call it connection where they're <laughs> able to to talk with each other and he if you listen to the commentary ryan johnson actually had both actors do these scenes twice one in kylo's location one in ray's location so that they could convey that sense of um, physical intimacy uh, as if they really were sharing the same space i think he knew that that was missing too because uh there's a deleted scene also in those extras where you see uh bb8 roll up to finn and Finn's staring at that dang beacon again, and it kind of like doesn't necessarily mean anything to us. And then BB-8 literally plays a recording of uh, Ray looking over Finn after he's been injured and kissing his forehead. And then you see the whole process of thoughts where Finn is like, wait a second, my friend Ray. And then he looks at the beacon and he's like, oh yeah, I should try to find her. And he, he walks us through like so many thoughts in this moment that completely is cut out of the film. But I think it is, the reason it was in there initially is definitely like, I don't know if this beacon thing is landing. Maybe I need to kind of like really hit it over the head. So even though that shot, that scene would have been kind of clunky to have in there, where even Finn calls it out in the scene and he's like, why did you have a recording of this BB-8? Uh, it still would have maybe helped that. Uh, instead, I, I bet you ask your average person about the beacon uh, and they don't even remember there was a beacon in the movie. One area where I was glad to see Lucasfilm let go of some control or at least have the appearance of letting go of some control is the feature documentary that's on the the VOD extras in the Blu-ray. It felt, I mean, it was longer. It was a 90-minute, you know, full-length uh, documentary, and it felt much more like a singular expression of a filmmaker following this movie through the production and editing process than a official corporate product with everything edited exactly the way they wanted it. It, it at least had the appearance of being a more candid, more natural uh, uh, approach to the behind the scenes documentary than I, I think I've ever seen on one of these uh, yeah. uh, extras. Well, uh, it has alien genitals in it, so that's how you know that it's definitely a laid-back approach. And Chewbacca and hot rollers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, it, I agree. It's um, I'm amazed to see how hands-off Kathleen Kennedy and uh, the the Disney ILM team has been with with Ryan Johnson, even to the uh, 
extent now that they're giving him his own trilogy to direct. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it's interesting. I'm sure from that perspective, it seemed hands off listening to the commentary. It's kind of interesting to hear the opposite from Ryan Johnson, how much he says, okay, yeah, ILM was so great when they, they composed this shot. Philip and I were joking that it felt like when you were watching the other behind the scenes featurette for uh, the Phantom Menace, where there's that shot of George Lucas infamously going through the storyboard and using two different color highlighters to say, all right, this will be CGI. This will be CGI. This I'll just shoot on a soundstage. And then like 75% was was all CGI. And that's the way like he kind of looks at it. It felt like Ryan Johnson kind of had that George Lucas mindset of, oh, at times, at at times. I mean, for a guy who does try to pick up as much as he can practically. And I was amazed, actually, also, there was times where he said, oh, this was all practical. I'm right. like, how, how much time did you spend? They, the whole Snoke uh, throne room was was practical. They built that actual stage, which is oh, I was amazing. Am- I was amazed to hear uh, on, on the video that that whole thing was built. I, 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 had n- I would not have guessed that they built that whole thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, the production design of this movie is fantastic, and... Uh, Ryan Johnson is famously a director who likes to get things practical. And if you watch his work on Breaking Bad, there's a ton of shots where he would just put the camera inside of a, a safe and have it open up and look out at the character. And there's a couple shots like that uh, that I'm really glad they gave this movie to Ryan Johnson because he really is a, a visual genius when it comes to storytelling uh, and setting up interesting shots. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that some of that was able to work out. But I think in the the parts of the movie that didn't really ring as hard for me, it would be the ones where he did kind of let ILM take over. The one that comes to mind is this big uh, father chase through (laughs) Canto bite, the escape from the casino planet. It took up like probably a good 20 minutes of the movie. And and was even longer in the original cut. Yeah. You can see in the deleted scenes, there was extended bonus material, 12 more minutes of it. I said, I, this is a part of the movie that you could have just removed completely for me. It felt like a, a really great episode of a Star Wars TV show yeah. that I would have loved, but in a movie that's two and a half hours long, it's just, there's probably a quicker way to get. Well, and you, and you really, me. you really wonder, particularly when you see the tag scene at the end of the film, if this is where his trilogy is, is going to be. Brian Johnson did point out in, in some of his interviews and in the commentary that, that, he wanted to end with that kind of coda because he said you could have just ended with the Falcon blasting off into space, uh, but he wanted to go back to Canto Bight because the whole thematic arc for Luke Skywalker is not just to like help them win this battle and help them escape. He needed to reignite hope across the galaxy and for the rebellion to continue in other far, far out places that we wouldn't even think about. So the whole point of this movie is to show that, you know, the, the rebellion lives on in places um, far and wide. Um, so yeah, I, I could see that, uh, being a direction Ryan Johnson would go is showing other smaller parts of the, uh, galaxy that has been inspired by this legend of Luke Skywalker's force ghost appearing and beating up a bunch of, uh, gorilla walkers on, um, crate. Well, I uh, think, I think the idea that the force and hope continue to spread through the galaxy and his trilogy kind of being like, what are the ripples of that? That sounds great. What I get nervous about is if Cantobite is kind of his idea of what a trilogy could be. Because that to me is playing this game called uh, If This Then What. And so he's he's like, we have literally a universe to play with. So if that's true, then what exists in this universe? And so we know that we've seen, like, for instance, uh, in Phantom Menace, we see slaves 
And so if that's true, then who then who's benefiting from having slaves? So there must be an upper class. And we've seen glimpses of that before. Uh, we know that if uh, uh, Han Solo is kind of like a space pirate, then there must be like the straight laced normal people that he steals from. So it's like uh, that game that you play, but he played it kind of to an extreme where it's like, you know, if Star Wars has has drinks and those kinds of things, it probably has casinos. And once you start getting into like, well, anything can be in Star Wars, you kind of are like a, a kid in a candy store like who probably should be on a leash, but instead is like, I'm going to have one of everything. And then we all get sick at the end and throw up because it's like not everything needs to be in Star Wars. So I just be nervous where he's like, you know, we need a Star Wars amusement park in one of them. And we're going to have Star Wars like a sitcom, uh, you know, ugly husband and hot wife. It's as part of the Star Wars universe. Like, sure, he could take it anywhere. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of taking it to places like Cantabite. Yeah, that's my concern with, uh, I would say, the whole Star Wars franchise moving forward is there is so much Star Wars that's on the schedule to be made. You have this trilogy from Ryan Johnson. You have J.J. Abrams Episode Nine. They just announced that Jon Favreau is right. going to do a live action TV show that's on top Swingers of all the animated in Star shows. Wars. And then you have the showrunners from Game of Thrones who are now going to be producing more Star Wars right. content. It's, it's become a point now where we're kind of uh, doing fan fiction for Star Wars. You know, like, sure, uh, we saw from the expanded universe novels that stories could be told for any of these small characters. They have, like, a side story with a with a doctor, uh, with a, a plastic surgeon that, that Obi-Wan uh, cuts his hand off in, uh, in uh, Maz Eisley Cantina in the first movie. Uh, he's got a whole story. But in terms of uh, movies and, and television and screen adaptation, it becomes hard to stay emotionally invested when you're just overloaded with content. Uh, I, I Look, I'm a nerd. I'm going to watch everything Star Wars related. I don't care. Uh, but it's going to get to the point of exhaustion. The bubble's going to burst well, eventually. They're, they're- they're basing kind of on Marvel, right? And they're sure. saying, like, look at what Marvel's been able to do. Now we own both. Let's go ahead and turn Star Wars into more of a Marvel franchise where everyone can get their own thing. But every Marvel film is still playing with the same themes of what it means to be a hero, what the responsibilities of a hero are, and, like, what it takes to be a hero. And they even take that down to the TV shows and, and the Netflix shows where everyone is kind of, like, discovering, like, what the, what they their responsibility is. They're not also doing, like, what if, what's a Marvel cooking show look like? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> (laughs) they're limiting it to one thing and it feels like star wars is on the verge of being like oh we could do anything yeah well i think if you if the i mean of the three projects that we know about going forward the the benioff and weiss series or the benioff and weiss uh films trilogy presumably the uh ryan johnson films and the uh john favreau series I, i i would expect that the three of those are not going to be cross-pollinated lots of easter eggs back and forth to each other characters moving back and forth i i would expect or 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 hope at least that they're going to be discrete expressions of their own ideas that just happen to live on this platform on this star wars universe and and you know i mean in much the same way that the marvel uh, uh shows function on netflix i mean those are those exist within the, the 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 MCU, but it's not like Luke Cage, you know, pops up in, uh, um, you know, an Iron Man movie. Or I mean, they're 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 a little bit off on their own and are able to be, you know, an an expression of of those creators' visions rather than having to serve this big 
juggernaut, which I, I think may be the problem with the Agents of, of, of S.H.I.E.L.D. series is that it, it was too fan servicey or is. Yeah, uh, sure. On the, you know, Kevin Feige at Marvel Studios is a is a unique, um, rare unicorn in the forest. No one else exists like him. He's created a new way to make movies in these broad cinematic universes. Uh, and he's had his vision, if we're talking about Avengers Infinity War, since day one, since he started uh, Marvel with the first Iron Man in 2008. Uh, I think... The way Lucasfilm looks at and Disney looks at their Star Wars property is they have a very, very valuable IP that they want to try to make as much content as possible. I don't think it's. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's a big cinematic universe strategy the way Marvel has. I think that's a that's a unique thing that other studios have tried to replicate, as we saw with Warner Brothers and their DC property. But it's it's very hard to do without uh, a, a someone who is as uh, both business savvy expertise and creatively minded and as much of a nerd as Kevin Feige is who knows what these properties are and which ones will do well when you're piecing them together. Well, and I would hope from the fact that Kathleen Kennedy and Kevin Feige both answer to the same Disney that you, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah, that you might see, you know, that Lucasfilm take this idea that 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 the MCU has has really, frankly, perfected and not try to make everything talk to every other thing and every movie set up the next series or the next movie or that, you know, that, that some of these things can exist on their own. And I, I hope that's what happens with these Star Wars projects. Well, the real uh, information there and whether or not that's going to be the case is if we can ever see the uh, original ideas for the Han Solo movie versus what we're going to get in theaters, because that'll tell you what Kathleen Kennedy is thinking. This is what we should be doing versus what other people are thinking, because the way it looked was definitely that there was a it was going to be a Star Wars comedy, essentially a Firefly in space or something like a space Western uh, that maybe felt like it wasn't going to be a Star Wars movie. Uh, and a lot of people are like, are we okay with that? Do we, are we okay with the comedy in Star Wars? Um, you know, that's speculation, of course. Like, maybe that's not what the issue was. But if it is, then it would tell you, yeah, they are getting the idea. No, Star Wars movies are Star Wars movies. They're not every kind of movie that happens to be in Star Wars. And and just for a little bit of background on Han Solo, that film was to be directed and, in fact, was directed by the two guys behind the Lego movies, right? Right. Yeah, Lord and Miller. Lord and Miller. And they did 21 Jump Street as well. And then at some point, Lucasfilm goes to the bullpen and brings in a new director, Ron Howard, to shoot from from accounts I've seen as, as, as much as two-thirds of the entire movie. Yeah, there was uh, all kinds of... Pro I mean, it sounds like from insider rumors, there were issues with... Alden Ehrenreich's acting or his performance, they, they, uh, there's all kinds of finger pointing saying that Lord and Miller are too improvisational in their style, and you're you're working with a script and a character created by Larry Kasdan, which Who's is one of the best of the screenwriters best writers ever. ever. He created Han Solo and is arguably one of the best heroes in all of cinema. Uh, so how much do you really want to improvise with a character like that? Uh, I feel like the tone can get kind of mixed, but I don't know. I, I feel like you want to roll the dice a bit. You keep hearing these stories about um, auteur directors, specifically ones with comedy backgrounds, getting replaced because they don't fit in with the, the studio brand the way Edgar Wright got replaced on the original Ant-Man in 2015. Uh, I, 
as, as people who come from comedy, I, I think comedy is such a subjective thing and it doesn't always, uh, sometimes it feels subversive and feels like you're making fun of uh, the history or the legacy of the character. But I don't know. I, I you got to be willing to roll the dice, and I, you know, I I'd love to see some kind of leaked footage of uh, the uh, way Aaron Reich was playing the character. You know, I bet that whoever uh, you know whether or not you're down with a comedic version. If you watch the Last Jedi, and when in a, one of the opening moments. Uh, you have essentially like an extended joke sequence where Hux thinks he can't hear uh, what's his face. Uh, uh, it was yeah, it was great. Posting. It was a fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it was a fantastic scene. Yeah, if that may, if some people might cringe at, at moments like that, and then you know that's what I think they were trying to avoid with the solo movie. But yeah, it was a breath of fresh air because Star Wars does take itself so seriously. But I'm also going to call out that we're trying to have it both ways. Where we're saying like, st- you know, we don't want Star Wars to do everything. But wouldn't it be nice if it did a little bit of comedy and a little bit of this and, a little bit, and like, you know, it's a slippery slope. You're right. Mark Hamill spoke out after The Last Jedi did some interviews about not liking the direction of the Luke character. And you see a little bit of that in the documentary on the the VOD uh, extras, I, I would have liked to have seen a, a little more of that because you you see it more from Mark Hamill than you do from Ryan Johnson. But I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, is is there? A, do you agree with Mark Hamill, or do you agree part of the way with Mark Hamill that the character was drawn in a way that just did not jibe with 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 Luke Skywalker? Well, we can't be too broad with with what I think his beef was because he's also said that he's really supportive of some of the choices. So if you watch on those extras, there's a sequence uh, that was removed where uh, Luke is kind of teaching Rey a lesson and he creates a false battle um, happening in the community near where he's training her. And he's kind of playing like a little bit of a mean trick on her um, to make her look foolish. And so the idea that Luke is maybe afraid of of what the Force can be and maybe questioning essentially his religion, that's all fascinating. I don't think that Mark Hamill had issues with that. But watching that sequence that was removed from the movie, but of course Mark did not know that going in, that this would not make it into the movie, you kind of get this vibe like, okay, but Luke's just being a jerk right now. Like he's... He's not only is he questioning whether or not the Jedi are right, he's also like being uh, careless about what is going on in the, in the galaxy. And like, you know, uh, Ray, even in that moment, points out she's like, our friends are dying and you're you're like messing with me. That that doesn't feel right. And I think those moments definitely I would I would understand why Mark would be like, this doesn't feel like Luke. Luke is a hero, even if in this movie he's he's questioning that. A hero doesn't like mess with people while the people they care about are dying. Yeah, I think um, I, I could imagine it'd be very difficult for Mark Hamill to take on the character as it was written for him uh, by Ryan Johnson, the way Ryan Johnson changed it. Uh, but hearing Johnson talk about his inspiration for why he changed Luke in such a way is, you know, a lot of the people complain that we never got to see Luke be the badass Jedi master that he is. I would argue we did. We saw him in Return of the Jedi take on Darth Vader in one of the best lightsaber duels we've ever seen in these series. Uh, And for Luke to have a true arc in this story, he needs to start in one place and then go to the other place. He needs to start in a place of exile and cynicism and, and guilt 
And he, uh, Ryan Johnson, I think, well, you know, the the story as it was given to him by J.J. Abrams is that Luke is a hermit on this island. So he had to create a reason for why. And his reason was, well, he's not a coward. He's not hiding. He's He chooses to live there for some decision he made. He felt this is the right thing for him to do. And I think that kind of uh, grouchy, uh, Clint Eastwoody, get off my island <laughs> attitude that he has at the beginning comes with that. And I think when you're looking at the way Luke has a relationship with Rey, um, Johnson is pulling a lot from Yoda's relationship with Luke and Empire. He's uh, he's kind of messing with his head. He's joking with him. He, he, he's not so self-serious the way that uh, Luke has heard these legends about Yoda. Rey has heard these legends about Luke. And the person who she meets needs to be surprising and, and defy those expectations. And I think he did a good job hitting that parallel. Once he edited out some more of the jerky stuff. Yes, I think he, he needed to find the right balance. And in the final cut, I think he did. One of the things I watched The Last Jedi for the second time through, uh, knowing that Carrie Fisher had died between when they finished principal photography and when the film came out, is was there an opportunity with the footage they had to 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 kill off the Leia character within the film. And I really think there was. They they had an opportunity when she gets blown out into space to treat that as her death. And so I, I assume that they've made an affirmative decision to have her live through the end of the film for reasons that we just don't know about yet. Do you have any sort of speculation on how they may deal with that in the third film? Well, they had imagined that the third film of the trilogy would be Leia's story. The original outline for it, according to Kathleen Kennedy, was that episode seven would be Han Solo's story, episode eight would be Luke Skywalker's story, and then episode nine would be Leia's. So I think in the original script, and they had, they had finished principal photography with Carrie Fisher by the time of her death, uh, so I think they wanted to stay true to the version of the story that, that she agreed to do and that they had outlined in the script. And maybe it would have felt like a betrayal to suddenly change that story. Right. And it probably would have been more complicated too, well, considering how much Carrie and or Leia uh, plays a role in the story. As and it goes also, Carrie Fisher and Kathleen Kennedy were both very excited to finally, you know, make uh, that promise, deliver that promise that Leia has force abilities. So you're right that that moment, of course, she could have died in space, and it would have been this tragic thing. It would have pushed Kylo much further uh, down his path. But at the same time, kind of being sensitive to to what did happen, Kathleen Kennedy's like, I told Carrie that we would finally own up to the fact that Leia has force abilities. She's a Skywalker. Luke has told her in the past movies that she herself could develop these powers. Uh, and then I'm going to take that away from her posthumously. I, I, I get that they just could not do that. Yeah, as for episode nine, um, you know, they've been they haven't said too much about it, but they have different options at their disposal. I mean, especially if you're looking at Disney's history with this between the the Cars movies and the Pixar world, um, uh, Paul Newman passed away between films and they had to kind of posthumously come up with a, a, um, a respectful explanation for why he's this character is no longer part of the world rather than use a different imitator voice actor to try to replace him. Uh, because they believe that that actor was so uh, connected to that character, um, rather than use CGI to try to create an entire performance right. uh, from Carrie Fisher, uh, I, I think there are ways they could do it. They could have some uh, way that the the third movie could be kind of a tribute to her memory, the way that 
the third Cars movie, which I argue is great. Uh, say what you will about the Cars movies. The third Cars movie is in a lot of ways a tribute to the memory of Paul Newman's character and, and the message that he had for the protagonist in that movie. And I think that Carrie Fisher's spirit uh, will be present uh, in, in a way. Um, that said, Star Wars has done CGI versions of, of previously deceased uh, people. So, it, you know, it's kind of terrifying, but I could totally see them like giving us at least two, maybe one or two scenes with a CGI character. Yeah, anything more than a force ghost that they use from uh, stock footage, just kind of waving at a character during right. some Ewok celebration would uh, would make me feel... Uh, well, they did that. They out. did that with Carrie Fisher in uh, at the end of Rogue, Rogue One. Rogue One, they? right? They that's, did. That's one of the examples, and then also in Ro- in Rogue One, uh, I'm forgetting the actor's name, uh, but uh, the guy who played um, Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah, yeah, he he also they brought him back, and you know that it ends up becoming this huge debate about like, does the CGI look good? And I think that's one of the most awkward uh, questions to have about someone who's who's passed away. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of actually in Force Awakens, the way they re-edited some of Alec Guinness's uh, dialogue uh, to have him be able to say Ray um, as as Obi Wan. Uh, if you if you listen very close to that movie. And it's this really respectful way of taking his existing performance that he'd already given to Star Wars and repurposing it. Now, to to do that for Carrie is going to be really difficult, but at least I, I like that angle a little bit more where it's like, you know, let's see what we've got to work with that the actress was already behind rather than the the very dangerous thing of we can invent a performance that did not exist before with an actor who is no longer with us because yeah. that could just happen in every movie then. It presents a really scary dilemma for if you look at the industry side of this, if you're in you know, one of these acting unions and you sign a contract to be in a movie. And your likeness is sold. And your likeness, you sign your contract. Oh, well, I understand that I'll be on big screens. And when they do, um, you know, VOD releases and streaming services, all of, and people will be able to watch me years from now. Do you sign away your likeness so that your face can be 3D mapped and then and be made to, like a puppet to say whatever you filter. want yeah. and with new dialogue that you never signed off to say? Uh, yeah, we're going to have to like revise contracts if that's I'm sure it's already happening right now. Uh because that's that's an interesting thing. I'm, you know, actors will probably jump at a chance to be in a Star Wars movie, but who knows where these movies are going to be and and how ethics may change in the future uh and how cuz I mean, you, not even the future. Now, when this when they do this, this is going to decide a lot of yeah. of what to do. Look at this movie Ready Player 1 right now. Characters are are using uh, 3D imaging technology to map avatars of famous iconic movie characters from the 80s so that they can appear as that in movies being made to say and do whatever they want. Uh, it's yeah. Well, and on the other side of that, you've got the actors doing the actual mocap that I think we're seeing. There was a feature on the VOD extras about Andy Serkis's performance uh, in the throne room as Snoke. He's amazing. I mean, the 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 motion capture performance is fantastic. And I I hope Andy Serkis uh, for some character at some point gets some recognition for, you know, for what he's done in his career and and gets an Academy Award nomination for one of these motion capture characters. Yeah, uh, a lot of people believe he should have been nominated, and I agree for his work as Gollum. In the, in, or in the uh, Apes franchise, too. Or in the so, Apes franchise, yeah, yeah as uh, playing Caesar. He's really broke new ground. I, I could see him getting like a Lifetime Achievement Award at some point, the way that you know people like Charlie Chaplin and Jackie Chan, they, they tend to underappreciate physical 
performers by the uh in the academy even though this is such a physical art form acting on camera and they've created a whole new way to tell stories through characters um yeah benicio del toro people go nuts for his stutter that he came up with for right. his character in this movie and oh, it's like an look adaptation. at andy Serkis. he, he came up with a, a different spinal column yeah <laughs> i i it, it's uh unfortunate that he's been overlooked but he's he's truly a genius in what he's doing and uh, it's you know we were talking about the CGI watching looking at Snoke again they have done such a good job at creating the upper half of the face with the eyes and the the brow wrinkling and the way like the cheeks push into the eyelids and and etc but everything from the nose down they still have not captured the lifelike way human beings talk like the mustache area yeah famously <laughs> yeah. I don't know I, I there were times when I I could have been persuaded that that was a practical effect and not a I completely made CGI made character. On close-ups, uh, that's when they definitely always put the most work in. But they actually have been really good at close-ups for a long time. That Final Fantasy movie, I mean, so many years ago now, when they're close-up on hair and faces and eyes, they look photoreal. It's like something about the little bit of zoomed out, and then you start to get that jelly motion a little bit. Um, the eyes, you know, don't reflect light the way we expect them to. There's still there's still a little bit of ways to go. I mean, the fact that, you know, it, like you were just saying, Carrie Fisher and Rogue One... Some people look like a cartoon was suddenly on screen. You know, they got they got some improvements to make. Yeah. Uh, Philip, one question I wanted to ask you in particular that's got some real world uh, implications. Who would you say has better control of the dark side, Kylo Ren or your dog, whose name is also (laughs) Kylo Ren? Well, so we're trying to we're training Kylo right now, my dog to uh you know inhibit his dark desires because he's <laughs> he's we're i've been doing a lot of recording at home and uh we're in a new house and he thinks that everyone is here to murder us and he's <laughs> you know he's all of like 11 pounds but i i mean he will jump up and try to get to someone's throat i can tell that's what he's aiming for uh so in terms of like raw dark side it's there for him but we're trying to suppress it um you know just i mean Wish us the best. Well, he just keeps smashing that mask that you get him. Yeah, into so many pieces, yeah. What else are you covering over the next several months? I know you've got five or six more episodes of The Walking Dead that you'll cover. You'll have the Avengers coming up uh, in May. What what comes after that? Oh, we've got a big summer ahead of us. Uh, Deadpool 2 is coming back in, in May. Uh, there's also a little movie called Solo, A Star Wars Story. That kind of The trailer kind of came and went for that, but uh, I'm more excited to see what that ends up being. Uh, we're also starting to get more into Pixar movies because those are like, like all these movies, definitely labors of love and are filled with interesting detail and uh, the way these movies are crafted are fantastic. So we have um, Incredibles is coming back this summer. Um, and then uh, we'll see what happens on the television side of stuff after um, Walking Dead ends. There's going to be a big Fear the Walking Dead crossover in its season finale. And then there's also shows like Westworld that are coming back that we're huge, huge fans of. And uh, and the show Legion on FX is, uh, is a real, real mind trip. Uh, it's very, they definitely require some analysis and explaining. Uh, so we'll see. We'll, we'll be doing lots of, uh, we're going to try to spread our wings and, and cover lots of new stuff. Well, Philip Molina and Eric Voss, I really appreciate you talking to me and uh, hope maybe you'll come back at some point this summer and talk about uh, some of these other big franchises. Yeah, of yeah. course. Anytime. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs>